you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 7 through 21. Hear now the Word of the Lord. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that has been poured out upon your people through Christ. We thank you for the great shepherd of the sheep, whom you brought to life again from the dead. We thank you that we get to peer in now to this passage, to the very words of Christ, and to what that means for us as the sheep of your pasture. God, I pray that as we dig into this passage and to your word, that you would help us again uh, to behold your Son, to behold Christ, to love Him, to have our affections turned towards Him, and that you would work thanksgiving in our hearts for all that He has done for us. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. It's hard to believe that Thanksgiving is already upon us this week. Uh, for me, it feels like it sneaks up faster every year. And though we often treat it as just a mere gateway into the Christmas season, Thanksgiving is really a wonderful holiday. And not just because of all the food and the family time that we get, that's, that's great, but it's a wonderful holiday because of the very idea of it. Thanksgiving gets at what ought to be the default heart posture of every human being. It reminds us of the truth that everything that we have 
is a gift from God. Whether we're talking about food or friends or family or we're just talking about the beauty of creation or, or the change of the seasons or the general gift of life, everything we have is from God. You know, it has rightly been said that the, uh, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful, but he has no one to thank. And that's, that's absolutely true. In fact, just this week, I read an article on the Huffington Post that really illustrated this point. It was an article written by a professing atheist who wrote of her deconstruction from religion. And the whole point of her article was trying to convince her readers that she doesn't need God to give thanks. But what was amazing to see is at the end of the article, she ends up proving the very opposite of what she was trying to do. I want you to listen to her dramatic conclusion and notice her admission that her heart feels compelled to give thanks in the tragic way that she ends up dealing with that compulsion. Listen to what she says. At the end, she says this, I turn onto a gravel path that takes me into a valley. In that valley, a labyrinth has been carved out in the tall grasses. It's the perfect autumn afternoon to meander through the maze. As I walk, crispy stalks of hay sway in the breeze, brushing my hands and my cheeks. I collect dried leaves on the toe of my shoe and kick them so I can hear them rustle. I feel my cheeks glowing with the redness from the nipping air, so I turn to face the sun. I raise my face and close my eyes and let the sun's rays thaw my chilled cheeks. And then I continue on. A smile across my lips. When I reach the clearing at the labyrinth's end, I find a bouquet of dried flowers tied together with a twine resting on a rock, an altar. I feel compelled to kneel before it, to wrap my hands together, and to give thanks for this splendid day of perfect beauty, for being allowed to observe it and appreciate it. I do fall to my knees, but instead of folding my hands, I plant them on the earth and then allow my forehead to follow. I hug the ground. Instead of sending my prayers up to heaven, I whisper them into the grass. The fool says in their heart that there is no God. What she thought was a profound ending and proof of her point is actually a tragic ending and simply a proof of Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. This is what the depraved and fallen heart does. Every heart knows that everything around us was created and is a gift to mankind whether that truth is suppressed in unrighteousness or not. Deep down, everyone knows that thanksgiving ought to be the default posture of the human heart. We are mere creatures living in God's world, God's creation. The creature owes the Creator thanksgiving in all circumstances. But for the believer, this is infinitely more true. True. 
We, above all people, are to be a thankful people. Not just because of the blessings of creation, that is for sure, but also because of the infinite blessings of our salvation. No true Christian, no matter what is going on in their lives, should ever have a time when they are not grateful to God in Christ because of what the great shepherd has done for us as the sheep of his pasture, which we will explore in this passage today. This passage, I hope, fuels the fire of your gratitude towards your Savior. Now, we began this section last week as we looked at the the first six verses of chapter 10 in which Jesus issued this main figure of speech as both a corrective to the Pharisees and as a further revelation of who he is. Coming out of John chapter 9, where Jesus had healed the blind man who was then put on trial and, and cast out of the synagogue, Jesus was showing in response to that that these Pharisees are illegitimate leaders. They are nothing but thieves and robbers who accessed and abused the sheep for their own gain. And in contrast to that, he revealed himself to be the true shepherd who cares for and leads his sheep. He is the one who knows each of his sheep by name and is known by his sheep, which was on display at the end of chapter 9, when the man born blind fell down in worship to Christ. Well, as, as John says in, in verse 6, they didn't get it. They didn't understand this figure of speech. Though they thought they were those who see, Jesus is proving how blind they truly are. And they are absolutely blind to the truth of who He is. And because they didn't get it, Jesus is going to continue on, and he's going to get more and more clear with them in the passage that we are going to look at today. He is now going to explain and expand on this figure of speech that he began with. And as he does this, he's going to reveal two divine roles that he carries out for the benefit of the sheep, for which we ought to be profoundly grateful These will be seen in the two I am statements that he issues. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. Each of those reveal more of who Christ is as God. And each of those reveal specifically how he cares for and loves his sheep. And I pray and hope these truths that we would find fuel for our thanksgiving. Not just for the holiday, but for for life. There is profound wonders in this passage that we're going to explore. So let's, let's look at this first role, this first I am statement. Look with me at verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. Now, as we dive into this, it's important for you to understand that he is not giving a strict, linear explanation of what he said in the first five verses. He is, he is giving an explanation, but he's 
He's pressing the themes further, and he's, he's mixing metaphors, and he's doing things that we are not used to in our culture. Hearing this, we want to look at, back at verse 2 and, and say, well, w- well, wait a minute, Jesus. How can you be both the door and the shepherd who enters that door? This, this doesn't make sense. But the reality is, Scripture does this with Christ a lot. He is the fulfillment of of a lot of mixed metaphors. For example, he is the high priest who offers a sacrifice to God, and at the same time, he is the sacrifice that is offered to God. So rather than trying to make all of this fit in a straightforward fashion the way we like things, we just need to let Jesus do what he's going to do here, and we just need to go with him. And the first thing he tells us is that he is the door. Now, this is the third I am statement issued in this gospel. And remember, as we discussed this before, each I am statement is a play off of God's self-revelation to Moses. I am that I am. Each one of them reveals more of who Christ is as God. And here he says, I am the door. But you will notice he issues this twice. He says this in verse 7 and verse Nine, And there actually seems to be two different applications to this revelation of who he is. First, he speaks here of being the door to the sheep. And then here in a minute, we will see that he is also the door for the sheep. And those are different. As we think of him being the door to the sheep, the idea is that he is the only legitimate access to the flock. Christ and Christ alone mediates who may legitimately access the flock as an authorized under-shepherd. As he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now, Many, many have puzzled over exactly what he meant here because it seems, if we just take that in a straightforward manner, that, that he is saying everyone who came prior to his coming was illegitimate. But that can't be what he's saying, obviously, because in the Old Covenant, there was many faithful leaders and prophets who functioned in the role of an under-shepherd, like Moses and Joshua and David and others. So some have resolved this tension, and I agree, is seeing this as more spatial and metaphorical than just temporal. So carrying on the metaphor, and, and most certainly he's, he's mixing metaphors here, he would speak, be speaking of those who snuck in apart from him, apart from his authorizations, those who leapt over the walls by night before the morning came and the true shepherd arrived, those who gained access to the flock without coming through him. They are the thieves and the robbers. Anyone who accesses the sheep apart from Christ without coming through Jesus is is unauthorized and is seeking to harm the sheep rather than to care for them. In fact, the, the marks of an authorized shepherd are twofold, an authorized shepherd. One is that they themselves have come through the door. They have come through Christ. John says it this way in 1 John 4, Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So they must enter the door, first of all. But second is that a true shepherd will function in obedience to Christ and in keeping with his purposes. They will give themselves to the prescribed care of the sheep. If you remember from last week, we looked at Ezekiel 34 and and God's indictment against the false shepherd, the passage that really stands in the background of John chapter 10. And if if you looked at that text carefully, you, you notice that there are several things that God indicted the shepherds for, but one of them arises above everything else. It was the one he started with, and it was the one he repeated three times. And it was the the fact that the shepherds were feeding themselves rather than the sheep. God's opening address to the false shepherds in Ezekiel 34 was this. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat ones, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And then a third time, God said, The shepherds had fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore I am against the shepherds. You see, true, authorized, under-shepherds execute the will of the chief shepherd, which is to feed the sheep. This is why at the end of this gospel, after the resurrection, when Jesus restores Peter, he's going to ask Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And when Peter answers three different times, yes, Lord, you you know all things. You know that I love you. Three times Jesus will say, then feed my lambs. Tend to my flock. Feed my sheep. See, Christ loves his sheep. And any under-shepherd who loves Christ will love what he loves. And a Christ-appointed under-shepherd are primarily tasked with the role of feeding the flock. But what do they feed the flock? They feed the truth of God's Word by repeatedly pointing the sheep back to Christ. As we saw back in chapter 6, his first I am statement, Christ is the living bread that we must feed on. He is the incarnate word. He is not only the door to the sheep, he is the shepherd of the sheep, and he is the food for the sheep. And any under-shepherds who carry out that primary role of feeding, it is actually, as they do that, it is actually Christ, the chief shepherd, feeding his own flock through his servants. This is why any faithful New Covenant ministry must not just give a hat tip to Christ, but it must be Christ-focused. It must be Christ-centered. It must be Christ-heralding. It must be Christ-exalting, because Christ is the point. He is the beginning and the end of all true ministry, all true preaching. It's all about Christ. Preaching that is devoid of Christ is not Christian preaching. 
The Christian life is all about Christ. The gospel is all about Christ. The Bible is all about Christ. God's self-revelation to man is Christ. And any minister who is not marked by a devotion and appointed to Christ is not a faithful minister. And likely he has not come through the door. And he is not authorized. Because Christ cares for his sheep. He feeds his sheep. But not only is Christ the door to the sheep, he is also the door for the sheep. Look at verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus now repeats this I am statement, but this time he just says, I am the door, period. And this time he is, he is the door, not to the sheep, but for the sheep. Meaning, anyone who enters through him will be saved. Here, Jesus is just openly declaring himself to be the Savior. He is the path and the gateway. He is the door to salvation from sin and death. Again, this is a clear statement of divinity. A direct claim by Christ to be God. No one else could say this. I mean, just try to picture anyone else. Anyone else saying what he just said. If you enter by me, you will be saved. From anyone else's lips, that would just be sheer madness. But beyond that, that would just be sheer madness. But beyond that, who have knowledge of the Old Testament, as his audience does, the Old Testament highlights the magnitude of this claim. Because God said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, he said this. He said, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. God himself, through Isaiah, said that he and he alone is God and that he and he alone is Savior. Apart from him, there is no Savior. And then Jesus comes along and claims to be the singular door that must be entered in order to be saved. To his audience who has this Old Testament knowledge, they can only conclude one of two things. He is either insane or he is God, which, as we will see, is the conclusions that they're starting to wrestle with at the end of this. But Jesus has come to be the open door for the sheep, and that we may enter in and be saved. Now, what does it mean, metaphorically speaking, what does it mean to enter this door? How do we enter well, in keeping with the, the chief purposes of this entire gospel, it simply means to believe, to trust in Christ and what He has done. And don't forget John's purpose statement in, in writing this book. It's what's controlling everything as we move through this. It's what He's aiming at in every chapter, in every story. He makes it clear in John 20, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His 
name. That is the purpose for this gospel. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. Those who enter the door are those who believe upon him, who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of those who enter will go in and out and they will find pasture. When he says they will go in and out, this is a a Hebraism. It's an idiomatic way of saying the way of, of living one's life. That is to say that we who enter, we who believe upon Christ, we live our lives now in the safety and the security of having been saved. It's done. It's accomplished. We have been brought into the fold. And now we live our lives experiencing the provision of Christ as we feed upon His pastures, as we feed upon the richness of His Word and the truth of who He is. That's how we live our lives as His sheep. We who enter, we alone live lives having our souls satisfied in God through Christ, knowing that we can never truly die knowing that that glory is before us. By entering through Him as the door, we come into His sheepfold and we come under His care as the shepherd and our lives are lived out in that reality. Because that's why Jesus came, which is what He emphasizes here. Look one more time. Jesus, one more time, is going to contrast Himself with the false shepherds, with those who would seek to harm the flock. Look what He says in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, this is the last time that Jesus is going to address these false shepherds, which he was directly applying to the the Pharisees who were listening in on this. But it, it, it extends beyond them. It extends to everyone who would access the sheepfold for any purposes other than the purposes of Christ, which would be boiled down as, as to kill, still, and destroy. And the reason they do this, ultimately, whether they realize it or not, is because they are operating as satanic agents. These, this is a summarization of the purposes of Satan. Now, while the references to the, the thief here is in keeping with the metaphor. It's it's speaking about illegitimate leaders who do not come through the door. It no doubt expresses the evil purposes of Satan himself to take and to destroy, to bring death. As, As Paul says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. And their purposes are death. They come for death. But in stark contrast, Jesus tells us why he has come. For what purpose did he leave his throne and take on flesh and come to us? What was his mission? It was so that his sheep would have life and have it abundantly. That is his mission. That is why he has come, to bring life and not death. When Jesus speaks of life, he's he's not speaking of just mere existence. 
He's speaking about a he's speaking about a certain type of existence, a quality of existence, and he's speaking about life in God, life in union with Him, which is true life, because He is the fountain of life. He is what life is. As Christ will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To be separated from Christ is to exist in death. And it is to be headed to the second death, to eternal death. But to be in union with Christ is to have true life. It is to have eternal life in God. And He came to bestow that upon His sheep to those who have entered the door. And don't you just love that he added this qualifier of abundantly? I mean, he could have just said life, and that would be amazing enough, but it's not. he hasn't just come for mere life. He has come to bring abundant life, meaning he did not just come to bring adequate provisions for us, but to provide more than you could ever ask or think or imagine, more than you could ever need. This is not a shepherd who is stingy with his flock, but rather he gives lavishly to those who belong to him. The contrast between him and the false shepherds could not be greater. And this this contrast, though, is meant to show a fulfillment of one of the most anticipated promises of the Old Testament. A promise that was made in Ezekiel 34 after the indictment of the false shepherds. You see, the, the problem, the main problem of Ezekiel 34 was not that there was just evil shepherds ravaging and scattering the flock. That's, that's true. But beyond that, it was that the, the sheep actually had no true shepherd. There was no one who cared for them. And you one might think that God's plan was to, to judge the bad shepherds and then just to establish some better ones. But if you're familiar with that chapter, you know that was not God's plan or God's solution to the problem. Rather, listen, listen I'm going to read this passage. I want you to, to listen to the solution he gives after the indictment of the first ten verses. After he says, Behold, I am against the shepherds, he says this in verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
God's solution to the evil shepherds in the fact that there was no true shepherd in Israel was to assume the role himself, to be the shepherd for his people. God will do it. God loves his people. He will be their needed shepherd. Which is why the next statement that Jesus makes in verse 11 is so remarkable. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This is not a mere claim to be a good shepherd, but the good shepherd. He is the long-anticipated fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 when God himself comes to shepherd his people. He is here. He has come in the flesh. He has come to rescue his sheep, to save his sheep, to gather them in and to bring them into the fold and thus to grant them to live and feed on his good pastures and his rich land forever, to establish the new covenant, the eternal covenant, the establishment of it has arrived with the arrival of the shepherd. But the way he accomplishes that, nobody saw coming. Nobody saw coming. Not even his disciples. Before anyone could process what he just said, he immediately makes another statement that is equally baffling. Look again at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What? The shepherd of the sheep is going to die? The shepherd is going to die for his sheep? Yes. Praise God, yes. Here we have one of the most clear statements from Jesus regarding his intention to give his life as a substitute for his people. This is why he's called the good shepherd. The goodness of the good shepherd truly knows no limits. If you, if you try to think of a way that this shepherd could be more good to his sheep, you could not. You couldn't even invent something. There is nothing that he has not done for us. He has given us everything, including his very life, because of his surpassing love for the sheep. And Jesus wants his audience to get this. He wants us to see that everything he does, he does in love and care for his people. So he uses another shepherding metaphor here from his day to, to contrast himself with another type of person who would have interacted with sheep in the first century. A hired hand. Look at verse 12. He says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, Again, similar to 
what we saw last week with, with the gatekeeper. This is a place where we're not, we're not to try to over-interpret in an allegorical manner by trying to assign certain identities to the hired hand and to the wolves in this context. That's not his point. Rather, he again is using what was a common cultural scene of the day as a foil, as, as a contrast to emphasize his devotion to the sheep. In that time, those who owned a flock would often bring in a hired hand to watch over the flock in the owner's absence. The hired hand is, is not inherently evil like the thieves and the robbers. He does not have any intentions or aspirations to bring harm to the flock, but for him it's just a job. It's just a way to make a buck. He has no true vested interest in the sheep. He does not care for them because they're not his own. So if a wolf shows up threatening not only the sheep but his own life, he has no interest in risking his life for the well-being of the sheep. I mean, they're, they're just sheep after all, right? So at the end of the day, he flees to save his own skin. He leaves them vulnerable because at the end of the day, he's, he's not there to give his life for the sheep. He's not there to take harm upon himself for the sheep. He cares not for the sheep. He cares for himself. He's there for his own self-interest. But in stark contrast to that, Jesus not only owns this flock, but he knows them. I know my own, and my own know me. These are his sheep. He knows them. As we looked at last week, he knows each individual one by name. By name. There's, there's, this is personal. And what is hard to comprehend here is that he compares his relationship to his sheep, to knowing his sheep, to that of his relationship with the Father. Meaning his relationship to his sheep, like his relationship to the Father, with this obvious distinctions, is a reciprocal relationship of unity and love. Just as there is union between him and the Father, there is mystical union that exists between Christ and his elect. This isn't a general knowing. I just know who you are that he's talking about. This is intimate, personal unity between two parties, Jesus and his sheep, and thankfully for us, he's not just talking about the lost sheep of Israel. Look at verse 16. Praise God for verse 16. He says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning not of Israel. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Just as, as we saw from Ezekiel 34, he is, he is gathering them from the nations, from the peoples, from the countries. That is what Jesus is doing now. This is why he came, to rescue his sheep, not only from the nation of Israel, but from every tribe and nation and tongue, and to bring them together in one flock under the care of one shepherd. The reality is the only... The only way one can truly understand what he has said here is to understand the doctrine of election. Notice he, he says he already has other sheep that are not of this fold. 
The gospel has not even gone out to the Gentiles yet. But Christ knows his own. As Ephesians 1 tells us, before the foundation of the world, God chose a people for himself. He set his love on particular people from every nation. And those people for whom the Father has chosen to be vessels of mercy are the ones that he gave to the Son before the Son ever even came. Those given to the Son by the Father are the sheep of His pasture who are scattered among the nations and Jesus must bring them in to fulfill the Father's plan. And He will not lose one of them because they will infallibly listen to His voice. Jesus has come to create this one flock. And he has come to establish an eternal relationship between he and his people, his sheep. A mystical union between God and man in which the people will all be gathered together as one flock with one shepherd for all of eternity. That is what he's doing. This is the reason he prays the way he does in John 17. He prays for this very thing in his high priestly prayer. Listen listen to what he says in this prayer. He makes it clear who his intercession is for, and it's not for everyone. It's for his sheep. In John 17, 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Christianity is chiefly about union with God. That is the goal. That's where this is heading. This is why Christ came. That's why the Spirit of Christ dwells inside of you who believe now. This is the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. The shepherd came to bring in all of his flock scattered among the nations into one fold with one shepherd to be cared for for an eternity. Praise God. But as he says here, in order to accomplish this, it will cost the shepherd his life. To make this happen, the shepherd must die for the sheep. In a very real way, the shepherd must become the sacrificial lamb on behalf of the sheep. In contrast to the, to the thief who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and in contrast to the hired hand who is only there for his own self-interest and does not care for the sheep, Jesus comes with the expressed purpose to care for the sheep, not merely at the risk of his life, but knowing full well that it would cost him his life in order to do it. 
in order to truly rescue them and gather them in and bring them into his green pastures. It will cost him his life because of our sin. He will have to die for this sheep. And that's exactly what he did. He died for his own Brothers and sisters, this right here is why we hold to the doctrine of particular redemption. Jesus did not come to die for a mass of humanity that he does not know in order to make salvation possible for a nameless and faceless people. No, he came to die for his sheep, who he does know, who he set his love upon from eternity past in order to secure their salvation forever. His death was an ultimate act of love for his sheep. As Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. That's what he's done. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners in order to rescue us from our own sin. However, even though the shepherd dies, by the plan of God the sheep would not be left without a shepherd. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, from before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son and the Spirit conspired together, so to speak, to redeem a people. And in love, the Father charged the Son to take on flesh and to give his life as a ransom for his chosen people. Now, when Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me, that does not mean that the eternal love of the Father for the Son is somehow contingent on this action. That's not what he means. But rather, the Father's love for the Son was poured out in a display to the world through his obedience on the cross. You see, Christ's obedience to the Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross, was an ultimate display of obedient love to his Father. And it became the stage by which the Father displayed his ultimate love for his Son through his resurrection and his exaltation. As he bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. By the decree of the Father. This was the charge of the Father. This was the plan from eternity past. Not only that Christ would die, but that he would take his life up again. Can you imagine how crazy this must have sounded to his audience? It's one thing to say, I will lay down my life. But it's a whole other thing to say, I will take it up again. In fact, Jesus was so in control of his life that he says no one can take it from him, which has been displayed countless times throughout this gospel, hasn't it? How many times have they tried to kill him? Over and over they sought to kill him, but it just says it was not his time. His time had not yet come. 
And when they finally do kill him, it's not because they had the authority to take his life. It is because he laid it down of his own authority. And his own authority to lay it down was proven by his authority to take it back up. When Jesus rose from the grave, everything he said was proven true. How do you question the one who predicted his own death and resurrection and then executed it? That's what he did. But sadly, most of the time thought he was just merely out of his mind. Look at verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, he's an insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Peeling back to what happened in John chapter 9. At least some of them are starting to think rationally here. They're at least acknowledging that they're dealing with someone who has power and wisdom beyond anything that they have ever seen. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. In my estimation, these words from Christ are some of the most remarkable in all of Scripture. The fact is, our minds cannot truly fathom all that he said here. We can't grasp it. We can't take it all in. Being believers, being Christ's sheep, means we are partakers of the cosmic plan of God to shower His divine blessings upon us for all of eternity. For no other reason other than to magnify His grace. Do you ever just step back and say, how did I make it a part of this? Billions of people in the world. And you're one of Christ's sheep. This is a plan that God is so committed to that he became one of us. And he died for undeserving, sinful people like you and me. And what must you do to be a partaker of this? Believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You enter the door by believing, by believing who Christ is, who He says He is, and trusting in His person, in His sacrifice, in His resurrection alone for your salvation. If you just believe, all of this is yours. Eternal life is yours. In the book of Revelation, John is given several different glimpses of the beginning of eternity that awaits us. And one of them comes in chapter 7. After he sees the great multitude that nobody can number from every tribe and nation and tongue, an obvious reference to the gathering of all of these sheep, it says this in Revelation 7.15, They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Why? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Church, no matter what's going on in your life this Thanksgiving, you have more reason to give thanks than you will ever be able to comprehend. Christ has saved you. You are a part of His fold. You are a recipient of His love. You are a benefactor of His death. You are a participant in His resurrection. And your future is sure. Let that be the fuel for your thanksgiving in your life. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our God, you are our shepherd, and we are the sheep of your pasture. Lord, may we come into your courts with thanksgiving at all times. May we long to spend time in your courts for all of eternity with thanksgiving flowing from our hearts and our mouths as we worship you, the only true God. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his coming. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for our forgiveness that you have made all things new. Lord, I pray that we would be a thankful people, a joyful people who walk in the knowledge that we have been saved and we are the sheep of your pasture. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.